you've got a Bible, try to find Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 11 today, Acts chapter 1. Last week, we kicked off this journey through the book of Acts. And last week, we talked about the fact that the big idea of the book of Acts is that Jesus is alive and Jesus is advancing his kingdom in the midst of opposition and suffering. And so we literally walked through all 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And we went from chapter one to chapter 28, and we covered the span of 30 years. And in those 30 years, what we see is that tons of opposition comes against the gospel of Jesus. Suffering comes against the gospel of Jesus. Difficulty comes against the gospel of Jesus. That following Jesus is not like getting an easy button that gets you out of all difficulties. But what we saw is that in every encounter of suffering and opposition, the kingdom of Jesus advances. And we read that fantastic exhortation in scripture that through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. And we walked through that. We talked about the fact that the entire Bible is about Jesus and his kingdom. And so I want to start there by just saying a couple of things that are really important about how you read your Bible. As you approach this book as a Christian or as a non-Christian with questions, there are three big American ways that we've been taught to read the Bible that are completely unhelpful. Um, The first American way of reading your Bible is to call this the roadmap for your life. Now, if it was a roadmap for your life, you would think that you could just sort of open it up and do the magic finger trick and get the answers to all the questions that you brought in here with you today. So am I supposed to marry Sally? And then you land in Leviticus and you're just very confused, very confused. Um, Should I invest in stocks or bonds? Uh, Am I supposed to go to college for this degree or for that degree? See, if the Bible was a roadmap for your life, then you would be at the center of the Bible. And the problem with reading the Bible that way is that the Bible is not about you. It has a lot to say about how you choose a spouse and what you do with your time and your money, but it's not written about you. It's not the roadmap to your life. The second wrong way that we read the Bible is we, we've been taught, many of us, that the Bible's a list of moral examples to live by. So God included these different people in the Bible because they're all heroes that we need to emulate. It goes something like this. Um, you need to read about David, and then you need to be more like David, which is like, Good advice until you get to the part about adultery and murder, right? It's like, be like David, except don't sleep with anybody that's not your spouse and don't kill folks. Um, Or or if we try to apply that principle to guys like Noah, you're going to end up naked and drunk in your tent. Here's Noah described as a righteous man that found favor in the sight of God. And he celebrates by getting trashed on moonshine like a hillbilly in the woods. So... And that's not just the Old Testament. You can do the same thing with the new. Um, Are you supposed to be like Peter when he says you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Or are you supposed to be like Peter when he denies Jesus three times and cusses out a little girl? See, the Bible's not a compilation of the most moral, fantastic people that's ever lived so that you can read their life story and try to copy them. If that's the case, if that's the case, then God just picked the wrong cast of characters to include in this book. The third way that we read the Bible that's really unhelpful is we kind of read the Bible as a life hack. 
So it's like, um, if you want to maximize your life, if you want to have the best life now, if you want to get all the things that you need to be happy, the Bible is sort of this formulaic book. And if you put together the right principles, if you move it around in the right way, it's this magic Rubik's cube that's going to make you happy and wealthy and wise. And that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is not about ways to maximize your dreams and your ambitions. In fact, here's what's breathtaking. This book contains 66 books. It was written by somewhere around 40 different human authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years, and it tells one story. The Bible is the one great story of the great God who has a great mission and a great Messiah to fulfill that mission. It's the story of God intervening. It's the story of God in his grace and mercy, fixing what went right, or excuse me, fixing what went wrong at the fall through what goes so right through Jesus. And so it's not your story and it's not my story. It's God's story. And it's God's story about his mission from the very beginning to the very end to have a people in a place that would be marked by his presence. In the book of Acts, what we have is a beautiful bridge. Acts is this wonderful bridge between the Old Testament promise, the Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament longing, and the New Testament fulfillment of those prophecies, promises, and longings in Jesus. One guy, Christopher Wright, wrote a fantastic book called The Mission of God. It's a really great book to read. It's also helpful if you need to put your car up on blocks. It's like way too thick. And uh, in that book, Christopher Wright describes the Bible like this. He says the whole Bible, the whole Bible, all 66 books, even the parts of the Bible that you don't know what to do with, the whole Bible renders to us the story of God's mission through God's people in their engagement with God's world for the sake of the whole of God's creation. This is a missional book. It's about God's mission. And therefore, if you're going to read the Bible and understand it, and if the Bible is going to help you make sense of your story, you have to read the Bible both missionally and messianically. It's about God's mission and God's Messiah, his promised one that fulfills all of the longings of creation and who makes things right. And in the book of Acts, what we see is that the mission of Jesus is not something that starts in the New Testament that doesn't have roots in the old. The mission of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecies that we read about in what's called the Old Testament. So today, if you got a Bible, go to Acts chapter one. I'm gonna start reading in verse four and we're gonna talk about this great promise. Acts chapter one, starting in verse four. And while staying with them, this is Jesus staying with his disciples, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And when they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here's what's crazy. The mission of God from the beginning is not just to have one people group connected to him by grace. The mission of God in the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and this encounter a pagan guy named Abram has with God. The mission of God starting in that minute is that God is going to do something through the seed of Abraham, through the lineage of Abraham, that's going to bless literally all the nations of planet earth. It's for every tribe. It's for every tongue. It's for every culture. In fact, it's transcultural. It's trans-ethnic. It transcends all the walls that we've built up. God is going to have people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that he brings into his family to be his people in his place. And so this dream to take the good news of his grace the fantastic news of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus so that by faith in Jesus, we can be the family of God to all the world. That great mission actually has the emergency brake pulled on it right here in this text that we read before they run with that message. Isn't that crazy? It's like, you're gonna go, you're gonna run, you're gonna tell, you're gonna be sent. The nations are gonna hear, the ends of the earth are gonna be glad. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, But here's the deal. None of that are you going to be able to do unless the promise of the Father comes upon you. You're not going to be able to market the world into transformation. You're not going to be able to program the world into transformation. You're not going to be able to come up with brilliant human strategies and brilliant human fundraising and all kinds of wonderful gimmicks to get people to believe you. If the spirit of God doesn't come upon you, you will have no power to be witnesses to the great saving work of God in Jesus. So before you run, you got to wait because the promise of the father is coming upon you. Now, why does Jesus call the coming of the Holy Spirit the promise of the Father? That's the question we want to wrestle with today. And what is that promise? What's the hope of this third person of the Trinity known as the Holy Spirit? Why should we want the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and into our city and into our church? And to answer that question, we could go to so many different places in the Old Testament, but I want to take you to two. Take your Bible Flip to the left from Acts and find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written somewhere almost 700 years before the birth of Jesus by a prophet. And in the book of Isaiah, what we have is God fleshing out what it's going to look like when his Messiah comes to fulfill his mission. In Isaiah chapter 32 and Isaiah chapter 44, we have these beautiful pictures of the promise of the Father this sending of the spirit through the son. So Isaiah chapter 32, I'll start reading in verse 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. So stop reading for just a second. In poetic language, in prophetic language, this guy named Isaiah is talking about the state of desolation and dryness that human beings have experienced in sin. 
And he describes the palace as abandoned and he describes the city as desolate. And he's about to use this metaphor of a desert to help us wrap our heads and our hearts around what it's like to try to live out our humanity apart from the life of God. It's like being in a desert without water. It's like being in a city without a population. It's like a beautiful palace that has no life in it, no people in it. What we see in the very beginning, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, is that God's great dream is that he would have his people. They would be connected to him by love and by grace. They would know him. They would feast on him and delight in him. And they would enjoy all the gifts in this creation that he's given us. And the result of that connection with God and connection with each other would be a culture and a society of life beauty and thriving that would point to who God is. The idea is that they would love God and they would love each other. And the result of that love for God and love for each other would be societies. It would be cities. It would be culture that reflects the beauty and goodness of God himself. And instead of that dream being fulfilled in Genesis chapter three, that dream is rejected in human stubbornness and sin. We walked away from God and now we've got this heart condition. We've got this life condition in which we try to find transcendent delight and meaning in all kinds of imminent places. Here's what I mean by that. There's a longing for God that's in the heart of every human being. It's a longing for depth and for beauty and for meaning that can only be satisfied in being connected to God. It's a transcendent longing because you're not just a body. You're also a spirit. You're made to live forever and your heart is wired for eternity and you're longing for that transcendent reality of delight that you were made to enjoy in the presence of God. And we can't see God and we're separated from God because of our sin. And so we take that longing to all the stuff God has created. We take it to family, we take it to marriage, we take it to work, we take it to drink, we take it to food. And the result of that is that we live in desolation and we have cities that are like desert spiritually because instead of feasting on God and sharing the life of God with each other, we're void of the life of God and we bite and devour each other. And in Genesis chapter six, we just get this tragic outworkings of our sin, of our separation from God and how it affects society. And in Genesis chapter six, instead of love and community that reflects the beauty of God who lives in love and community, we have murder and bloodshed and hatred and all kinds of sin that makes culture and society a toxic place to live. So we we could get real specific in our city And we could talk about all the places in our city that are desolate, all the places in our city that feel like a desert. And some of those places look really great, like Mesta Park and Heritage Hills and Oak Tree are beautiful places to live with great houses, but there's still desolation in many of those homes, is there not? There's relational desolation. And then we could talk about different parts of the city. We could drive south in OKC and we could take our our building that's on uh, Southwest 44th and just keep heading to the West and drive through neighborhoods where there's chain link fence in front of all the houses and you would find a different kind of desolation. We could talk about the reality in our city of all the people that are just disconnected and lonely and fractured. And what Isaiah is doing here is saying, hey, there's a problem with culture 
And the problem with culture is not a political problem and it's not an educational problem. The core problem with culture is a God problem. Because of our sin, we're not drinking from the headwaters of life. And therefore, no matter who you vote for in November, no matter who you put in office in November, they will not be up to the task of fixing what's been broken because of sin. So the palace is forsaken and the city is deserted. And that's not just a cultural thing. That's also an internal human reality. For many of us in this room, you're here today because you're starting to realize that all of the places you've taken your appetites and desires for transcendence have left you more desolate and your soul and your relationships feel like a desert. This is what Isaiah is describing, but he doesn't end with bad news. He's pointing to Jesus and what he will do. And we'll pick up in verse 15. Until the spirit is poured out from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in a secure dwelling, in a quiet resting place. So this is so crazy. Here's what he's saying. And it's just going back to God's dream in Genesis. God's going to do something through this Messiah to make it possible for his people to move from wilderness desolation into quiet, restful habitation. He's going to do something that's going to take the desert and make it feel like a fruitful field. He's going to do something that's going to take souls that are hard and rocky, and he's going to make those souls alive and breathing. He's going to move people that are living in disconnected from God isolation and disconnected from each other loneliness, and he's going to bring them into a place to be his people with his presence. The Messiah is going to send the spirit and the spirit is going to do this work. Let me show you another place. Flip to the right, Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse three. God says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of camping in the desert after a spring rain, but it should be on everybody's bucket list. If you go to a place like Death Valley throughout most of the summer, it's dry and it's amazing that anything can live there. The ground's cracked and everything's dusty and it's incredibly hot in the daytime and it's freezing cold at night and you see very little life anywhere. And then something happens around springtime and all of a sudden clouds start to form and water starts to fall on the ground and a desert that looked like death turns into a verdant field of life. There's flowers everywhere and there's birds everywhere and the animals come out and the insects are there and the smell of the flowers is in the air. Here's what God's saying. His great mission is to have a Messiah who would do something through his life, death and resurrection that would make it possible for the spirit of God himself 
to dwell among human beings and take what was dry and desert and make it alive and beautiful. He's going to make it fruitful. He's going to make it good. He's going to bring his people into his presence and they're going to be called by his name and they're no longer going to be barren and desolate. They're going to be fruitful and alive. Now, let me show you one more place. We, we could spend time in Ezekiel. We could go all over Joel, but let's go to the New Testament and look at the words of Jesus. Flip over to the right, John chapter seven. John chapter seven. This is the last day of the great feast and the city's going crazy. You could hear the loudness of the town. People were talking and they were selling, trading, celebrating. And in the midst of all the noise, Jesus is gonna do something really interesting. In verse seven, on the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up in the midst of the crowd and all the noise, and he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So track with me. We have these Old Testament prophecies that there's gonna be this Messiah who's gonna bring in a new age of humanity. It's gonna be the age of the spirit. It's gonna be the time in which God restores and redeems what was desert and dry, and he's gonna make it fruitful like a garden. And then we have Jesus show up in his earthly ministry and he reaches back to the Old Testament and he looks at a crowd of people, most of whom are trying to be satisfied in man-centered religion. And he says, if anybody's thirsty, if you're religious and thirsty, you're doing all the good deeds you know how to do, you're keeping all the rituals and rules as best you can, and your soul is still like a desert, come to me and drink. And if you're irreligious and thirsty, if you're running from God, if you're living a life of hedonism, and instead of being satisfied with all the money and all the pleasure that you're trying to medicate with yourself, instead of being satisfied, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink and rivers of living water will come out of you. And John tells us, Jesus is saying these things about the Holy Spirit who will be sent after Jesus is glorified. Then we get to our text in Acts that the promise of the Father is coming. Now, here's what this matters. It's the Holy Spirit who takes the work of Jesus, the Messiah, and applies it to our lives. It's the spirit who comes into our hearts that in their natural state are hard to God. They don't love God. Can we just admit here, we don't even have the capacity to see God, let alone love God without a miracle happening. Our hearts are harder and deader than Death Valley in summertime. We don't love God. We just love God's stuff and we want God to stay out of our way. And it's the spirit of God who does this crazy miracle that we don't deserve. As we hear about Jesus, that he kept the law you couldn't keep and he died the death you deserve so that you wouldn't have to and that death could not hold him, but he was raised from the dead. As you hear about Jesus, it's the spirit of God who brings water to the hardness of your soul and makes it come alive. 
He makes you have a soft heart where you had a hard heart. He makes you love God when you hated God. And he helps you to see all the things that you acted like were God are not God at all. And they can't get to the deepest longings in you for transcendence, for meaning, for joy. Jesus is sending the spirit in acts so that hearts can come alive. And not only that, he's sending the spirit in acts so that the people of God would move from being a desert to a garden for the benefit of hungry and thirsty people. See, we live in a world that's really dry. And for some of us, the definition of living in a garden is living in a place where you have the right spouse and the right house and the right car and the right career and the right retirement plan. For some, it's having a life of significance where you're doing some philanthropic engagement of the city. For some, it's just being able to have vacations and retirement, but everybody's got a dream of what your garden looks like. And the problem is most of our gardens we're tending are just yielding thorns and thistles instead of joy and delight. And for some of us, if we could get honest, your life work that you've poured into a garden, far from satisfying your deepest longings, it's just left you really thirsty. And what the spirit of God has the power to do is the spirit of God has the power to take the people of God and make them this fruitful garden because of God's presence and God's love so that the fruit of that garden is used for the healing of the nations. Can I take liberty with you and show you one more passage. Normally we do one text and we don't flip around like this. So if I'm stressing you out, I apologize. I wanna show you one more place that I think will bring this home. Take your Bible, go to Revelation 22. So really easy one to find. Just go to the end, flip left. Revelation 22. Now I know, I say revelation and some of you guys get a little jittery. Like we're going to start playing clips from a Kirk Cameron movie or talk about Nicolas Cage. That's not going to happen. The book of Revelations, not about supercomputers. The book of Revelations, not about barcodes. The book of Revelations, not even ultimately about the Antichrist. The book of Revelations about Jesus. It's about Jesus's mission in a desolate, dry world that is advancing and will ultimately come in perfection as he returns. This is Revelation 22, starting in verse one. And the angel showed me the river. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is the life of God that we were cut off from because of our sin. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb. This is Jesus who was slain to purchase people for God from every nation. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life. This is life that we were cut off of because of our sin. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. 
and they will need no light of a lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the end of his great mission. And here's what he's saying. The world that got turned into a desolate desert because of sin is going to be remade in Jesus to be a world of life and light. Because what Jesus did is brought us back to the father so that we could feast. So as we close this today, there is a lot of desert in our city. And there's a lot of desert in our souls and there's a lot of desert in our relationships. And there's no amount of irrigation digging that you can do in your own power to try to get enough water to our city to change it on your own. And there's no amount of finagling and trying harder that you can do to try to irrigate your soul on your own. And those relationships that are dry and dead and need resurrection, you can't prop them up on your own. This is why Jesus told his friends to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the father, the spirit of God, who's going to be like water that brings life in the wilderness. He brings fruit where there was barrenness. He turns deserts into gardens. Now, if you're a Christian today, this doesn't mean that upon meeting Jesus, every inch of territory in your soul and in your relationships is instantly turned into a garden. doesn't mean that, does it? But it means as you love Jesus, as you follow Jesus, the spirit of God advances the the kingdom of Jesus deeper and deeper into your life. And those places that were dry start to change. Those places that were hard start to grow. And the fruit that comes about in your garden is not the promised fruit of always getting the promotion or always having more money or never getting sick or never getting persecuted. The fruit that comes about that ultimately is fulfilled in the return of Jesus is fruit for the benefit of others. It's peace and it's patience and it's kindness and it's love. It's moving out of the center of the garden and Jesus being in the center of the garden. He's a better gardener than you. And the spirit of God then starts to bring life where there's death. And it's no longer about you protecting your life, but you laying your life down for others. And what starts to happen is churches, this is my prayer for all of our congregations as a church, that our congregations in our four different parts of our city would become gardens, not so that we can feast on Jesus alone as selfish people, but that they would become gardens and the fruit of our garden would be for the blessing, benefit, and renewal of our city. That God would change our hearts towards the needy, the poor, towards our neighbors, towards those that are hurting, towards the fatherless, that all of a sudden a city that spiritually was desolate and uninhabited and a palace that had no life in it would start to become a city that's inhabited because the people of God are being changed by the Holy Spirit. They're learning to love Jesus. And then they're bringing their gifts and the fruit that the spirit is creating for the blessing and benefit of our city. I I could tell a lot of stories right now. I could tell you about single moms I know in our church who were desolate and dry in their walk with Jesus, who met Jesus and now they're becoming these fruitful gardens. And Jesus didn't take away the difficulty of being a single mom, but now all of a sudden they have fruit to share with the people that they do life with. Wisdom and life and encouragement and love. I could tell you about businessmen and women in our church 
who were at the center of their story, who were worshiping the gods of money and fame and power and success, who met Jesus, and now all of a sudden their gifts and their jobs are all about serving others and advancing the kingdom of God. I could tell you about people in our church who never knew the joy of having a father that loved them, who now through the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus are experiencing the love of Father God, and now they're giving their lives away to mentor kids that are fatherless. This is what Jesus does. Jesus moves into the desert. Jesus sends his spirit to be like rain that makes the desert a garden. And that garden then doesn't put up walls and gates. That garden keeps the gates open and takes the produce out to the city for the blessing of others.